We saw last time Moses' career as a self-appointed Messiah, how he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand, how he went and delivered the seven daughters of Rule as they had their water stolen by these bad shepherds. But this time we see God coming back into the picture. God is not mentioned in the first 21 verses, first 22 verses of the chapter. And he finally comes up, told what God was doing, what God was thinking here at the end of Exodus 2. Now it happened, verse 23, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God knew. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us yourself in this text tonight. Lord, we need your help. Open our hearts, plow them up so that the good seed of your word can land there and find good soil and take root and produce fruit a hundredfold. Father, as we reckon with the question of where you are when disaster is ongoing, genocide is ongoing, when evil policies are ongoing, this text tells us where you are. So help us to pay attention to it. Help us to trust you in it. Help us to believe you as the God who sees and who knows and who therefore provides. Lord, we need faith. Give us the faith to receive this text. We pray these things. In the glorious name of our risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Well, this is a very short passage, particularly for historical narrative, to only look at three verses. But I want to look at it together to take the time for a whole sermon on it tonight because it highlights the character of God apart from and prior to anything that we would call action on his part. God doesn't do anything in this text. And yet, clearly this text is about his character. There are four Verbs in a row with God as their subject in verses 24 and 25. Four things God does. He heard. God heard. God remembered. God looked. God knew. And of course, chapter 3 begins to tell us what God did about it as he appears in the burning bush. We'll start there next week in the new year. But tonight we see that even if God is not doing what we would call action, He's not ignorant, absent, 
or unaware. God remembers his covenant, listens to his people. He knows their situation, even when politics has no help. And even when the pain continues to mount. Verse 23 tells us, now it happened in the process of time, kind of a generalizing translation. The Hebrew says, really, literally, now during those many days. And it was many days. Of course, the New Testament tells us that Moses was in the desert, keeping the flock of his father-in-law for 40 years. The time between the birth of his son there in verse 22 and the time when he encounters the burning bush in chapter 3, verse 2 is the time that's elapsed since New Year's Day, 1981 until today. Some of you, no doubt, remember how you spent New Year's 1981. It was a little while ago. It was a very long time ago. If you're living like Israel in Egypt. Being made to serve with rigor. Under taskmasters. With this policy of being worked to death. And yet, of course, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. The old administration is gone. Maybe there's some hope. But we know, of course, God had already warned Abraham back in Genesis 15 that his descendants would be slaves for 400 years or four generations. Two different ways of measuring the same amount of time. Either one is a very long time. 400 years since the Puritans or the Pilgrims came to Plymouth Rock in 1620. A lot has happened since then. By either measurement, 400 years, four generations, God is saying, you will be oppressed so long that you will grow old and die in your oppression. This oppression will definitely last not only longer than your lifetime, but longer than your children's lifetime. This oppression will be long enough that your great-grandchildren are certain to die in chains. And yet, of course, God's people continue to multiply, chapter 1 tells us. But nonetheless, it was many days. The 40 years that Moses was in the wilderness was only one-tenth, one out of ten, of the parts of the time that God's people spent being oppressed in Egypt. Now you would hope that Pharaoh would die and that the new Pharaoh would be a nicer Pharaoh. A Pharaoh with a little more clemency for the people of God. After all, traditionally, apparently, the time uh, presidents in our country issue a bunch of pardons at the end of their term. But kings in other countries, including in ancient Egypt, issued all the pardons at the beginning of their term. 
The old one's dead, the one who imprisoned all of you. So nobody cares if I let you out. And it was a time for feasting and celebration, and we've got a new king, and he'll be better than the old king. So Pharaoh dies, there's hope, perhaps, for a political solution. That seems to be why we're told here that Pharaoh died. But of course, the new Pharaoh is just as bad as the old Pharaoh. The text doesn't even trouble to tell us about the new Pharaoh. It simply says that the children of Israel continued to groan. Implication being that new Pharaoh is just as bad as his predecessor. If you're hoping for a political solution to the problem of persecution, oppression, bondage, genocide, don't get your hopes up. It may not happen within four generations or 400 years. I couldn't resist saying this. Obviously, politics in Egypt, where Pharaoh called himself a god, were rather different than politics today, where our rulers are so much more aware of their limitations. Oh, wait. Pharaoh's gone. But the genocide continues. The baby boys are still thrown in the river. Something like that. The Hebrew women are still... Under this threat, the people are worked under the taskmasters. Clearly, when Moses comes to Egypt in chapters 4 and 5, he finds that his people are still being oppressed under their burdens, just like they were when he left 40 years previously. If you're suffering, don't put your faith in a political solution. If you're called to politics, that's great to work for political solutions. But if that's where your hope is, if that was where the people of Israel's hope was, certainly they were miserable. The rest of the verse tells us about that misery. These three words, they groaned. That's the inarticulate noise you make to just express being in pain. I don't feel good enough to talk, but i got to vocalize, and so I groan and moan. That's how much it hurt. And then, more than that, they screamed or cried out. The pain was so intense that as loudly as they could, they yelled to indicate how badly it hurt. We simply don't know how badly it hurts to be in bondage for 400 years to an oppressor like Pharaoh. We don't know. Hopefully we'll never find out. But God's people in this era found out. And in fact, surely Moses is indeed having, you know, this is how bad it was. They cried to God. It was so bad that they actually started to pray. You can imagine how bad the pain was. That was the last resort, perhaps, but they cried Seemingly, it doesn't actually say that they cried to God. Their cry came to God, but it sounds as if it was a distress call on all frequencies. Anybody out there, whatever, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you're listening, help me. It 
do we expect this to be part of the Christian life? I'm going to run into situations so awful that I can't handle them. I'm going to run into times so painful that I will just have to send out a distress call. Do we expect to be able to handle everything life throws at us? Oh, I'll be fine. I can handle this. God's people couldn't handle the pain. Maybe you feel that way tonight. If so, right, cry out. Because why? Because of who God is. What kind of God does Israel serve? His name has been missing from the narrative. He's not mentioned as Pharaoh's daughter saves Moses. He's not mentioned as Moses grows out, grows up, goes out and looks at his burden, brethren's burdens. God comes back there at the end of verse 23. God heard their cry. I mean, I mentioned this, the pattern, the four subjects named God repeated four times along with a verb telling us what God did. God heard. He listened to those cries. Sometimes you send a message and you're really, really eager about it and you sit there and wait for the little red sign to pop up underneath on your electronic messaging service so you can say, oh, good, it went through. They got it. Well, you don't need that on your prayers. You have that. Every time you pray a prayer, I mean, you can fill it in for yourself if you want. Read, God saw that one. God heard that prayer. That one got through. If you believe this, that God hears, that's what motivates you to pray. I've mentioned this repeatedly in the last few weeks, but it's true. That feeling you get when you're talking to somebody and then you realize they're not in the room. How do you feel? Is there any part of you that just wants to keep talking? No matter how brilliant your thought was, when you realize that your audience has wandered away, it just deflates you a little bit. But God hears. Ishmael, right? That's our slogan. God hears. You talk to the people who are listening. You stop talking to the people who are not listening. God heard this cry. Now, that doesn't mean that he instantly saved them from bondage. No, he let them cry out for 400 years. But he heard it. And of course, we say, how can that be, God? Why didn't you stop it as soon as you heard them crying? The answer is that God's plans and purposes and goals are different than ours. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But we know that God hears. And when he heard, what did he do? He remembered. Now again, this verb, how would... We, we dare not say that God forgot. Oh yeah, 
Abraham. Oh, I was just trying to think of that name the other day. God didn't ever forget the covenant. So what does it mean to say that God remembered the covenant? Simply that it was in the forefront of his mind and he was prepared to take action based on his commitments. From the perspective of Israel, which of course is our perspective, God had forgotten it. And the psalmist actually asked that in so many words. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Did you forget about me, God? How long will you forget? It's okay to feel like God has forgotten you. At least many of the biblical writers felt that way. Just don't let yourself believe that he actually did. Because if you truly serve an absent-minded God, you might as well despair now. There's got to be too many things out there that could knock you off the priority list for an absent-minded deity. Only a God who can consistently remember is a God who can save. A God who doesn't overlook anyone is the only one who won't overlook me and you. God remembered. And what what was the covenant? Here's this key word covenant that shows up in the narrative. The covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. God remembered the promise he had made, the bilateral relationship that he had created between himself and Abraham that he then renewed with Abraham's son Isaac and that he renewed with Isaac's son Jacob. God remembered that. The promise of that covenant was not, your descendants will never have a problem. Your grandchildren will never be hurt. The promise was, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what God remembered. He remembered to be the God of Abraham and his seed. So God heard, he remembered, and he saw. God looked upon the children of Israel. Again, we know that God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's aware of everything all the time. But in a certain anthropomorphizing sense, he concentrated his attention on his people. He turned his attention their way. Again, not because he was going to rescue them immediately or just change Pharaoh's mind. The book of Exodus would be a lot less dramatic if Moses had come in the first time and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh had said, okay, yeah, why not? God saw them. God turned his attention on them, but that doesn't mean that he just made everything easy for them immediately. And again, so it is with us. The fact that the suffering is continuing is not proof that God is ignorant or that he is blind or deaf or that he's forgotten his promises. No, it's proof that his promises are about something different perhaps than we thought they were. The promise was not you'll have an easy life. 
You'll always get to keep your health, your kids, your car, your country, and your bank account. The promise was, I will be your God. So the chapter ends with this simple statement, this troubling statement, God knew. And you'll see that no English translation is willing to say that because you don't use the word know without an object. What did he know? And so the King James, God had respect unto them. New King James, God acknowledged them. All the way to things like God cared about them or the NIV's was concerned about them. Which, those capture a fraction of what the original said, which is simply that God knew. Of course, you read that and you say, what does God know? What is it that you know, God? And the answer has to be everything. He knew it all. He knew every aspect of their situation. He knew their minds. He knew their hearts. He knew Pharaoh's heart. He knew the labor conditions. He knew what was next on the schedule, he knew you can't put a limitation on what God knew. And that in turn challenges our sense that my pain is so bad that if God just knew my pain, he would stop it. And God's answer to that is, I know your pain. I know it. And we say, well, how come it's not stopping then? And the only answer can be because God has different plans, goals, and desires than us. He's not indifferent to our pain. He's not ignorant of our pain. But he knows a lot more about how to achieve his plan than you do, or than I do. At the end of the day, the statement that God knew is a statement asking you, are you okay with that? There's no getting God off the hook through ignorance. Oh, well, God doesn't know my pain. God doesn't know the injustice perpetrated in His name. God doesn't know what the sexual revolution is doing to American homes. God doesn't know what abortion is doing to babies around the world. He doesn't know and therefore we can't blame him. That that escape route is closed. No, God does know. And since he knows, the question he's asking us by saying, I know your pain... Stop. Right? Not I know your pain and I'm doing as much as I can about it. Just I know it. Well, why don't you do something, God? He's saying, Can you trust me? Are you going to be angry at me that I'm not moving heaven and earth to stop your pain? To stop this injustice? Are you going to be mad at me that Hitler didn't get whooping cough as a child in his bed? 
Or are you going to trust me that I know what I'm doing and that your pain is part of that? Moses puts this in here, right? Writing sometime during the Exodus years for God's people about how they got to where they were in the wilderness. And he tells them, you were suffering there in Egypt. And God knew that. He understood. He saw, he heard, he remembered, and he knew. Our comfort is not his be-all, end-all. It just isn't. And if we're not okay with that, then we don't worship the God of the Bible. Good luck finding a deity that will be all about your comfort. No such God exists. You can try to make one. Leave yourself a bitter, angry person with no friends because they disturb your comfort. God knew. And so, as I said before, and apart from any thing that we would consider God's action, He's active. He's receptive. He's taking in. He sees. He hears. He remembers. He knows. And He does take action to save. Chapter 3 onward tells us all about that. But if you're at the part in the story where you're in the desert for 40 years or where you're in Egypt for 400 years, can you trust that God remembers, that He knows, that He sees, that He hears? That's the God we say we serve. His idea of blessing may not overlap with ours, but it will never be frustrated or fail. That doesn't take away your suffering. But it does relativize it. Suffering is no longer absolute in your world. Your pain is not the only thing. You also have God who knows what you're going through and will deal with it in His good time. His promise is no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. Starting January 1st, 2021. No, it... The promise is there, but that starts, yes, on a particular day of this world's history, sometime in the future. But for each one of us, it only begins at our death. Before then, the promise is not no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. It's, I will be your God in your death, sorrow, crying, and pain. God knew. And he left him there for four centuries. But he did send Moses to deliver them. And we'll look at that next time as the angel of the Lord comes as a fire on the burning bush. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to talk about suffering when we feel good. 
Easy to talk about poverty when we have a hot meal waiting at home. Easy to talk about persecution uh, when the closest real persecution might be on the far side of the Pacific Ocean. Lord, when these things become more real to us, help us to know that you know. Help us to know that you see and hear that you are the God who sees, that you are the living God who sees, who hears, who remembers your covenant promise, and who takes action on your timetable. Father, we do trust you. Give us the faith to trust you more. We believe. Help our unbelief. We pray tonight for those who have known Egyptian-style bondage for four generations, for 400 years. Lord, we pray for this text to speak to them. Help them to know that you know. And to take comfort in that. Lord, we need your help if we're going to believe you in our pain. We pray that you would help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.